Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Rebecca Meyatt. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today our guest is Wendy Schultz. Wendy is a futures powerhouse and is highly regarded internationally for her research, teaching and professional experience in the futures and foresight field. Wendy started her futures education at the University of Hawaii in Manoa 40 years ago and has been director of her own consultancy, Infinite Futures, for over 30 years. During this time, Wendy has worked broadly and deeply in foresight research, planning and facilitation across many countries, including Canada, America, Croatia, France, Samoa, England, Singapore and Saudi Arabia. Her specialisations are in horizon and environmental scanning, impact analysis, scenario building and planning, visioning, training and facilitation. A few of many notable mentions in Wendy's experience are Wendy was a Fulbright lecturer scholar in future studies at the Finland Futures Research Centre in Turku, Finland, a fellow and former executive board for the World Futures Studies Federation and is currently a senior fellow for the Centre of Post-Normal Policy and Futures Studies with research on volatility, complexity, chaos and emerging futures in Chicago, USA. Wendy calls Oxford, England home, where she works with a small group of business and community futurists, creating foresight resources for business, government, non-profit and community leaders. Welcome to FuturePod, Wendy. Thank you so much for inviting me, Rebecca. It's a great pleasure. Yeah, excellent. So pleased to have you and to hear your story in more detail as well. Um, there's, there's so much in, in your experience, so I'm so thankful to have you on the podcast. So we'll start with with the first question of your actual story of how you got into the field and if you want to mention any mentors or inspirations um, and how you actually kind of went about developing your, your practice over time. Okay, this may be a longer answer and um, go farther back in time than you perhaps had anticipated because I would really start yeah. with... Um, start answering the question of how I got into future studies with my parents who were products of the Depression uh, and of World War II. And somehow, um, while being really about as average as you can possibly get in the United States in terms of demographics. I mean, I used to joke that I was the the middle child of middle class, sort of middle Americans. Um, mm. uh, and, you know, average height... Um, average family, we moved the average of once every seven years. Um, but somehow out of out of that uh, tale of excessive normality almost, um, I was lucky enough to have as parents two people who were intellectually very curious and adventurous and always interested in other cultures, um, who thought one of the best ways to learn was to travel. And another great way to learn was to experiment and that reading was something that should always be encouraged. And so really having kind of voracious readers, tinkerers, travelers, people who were active in community and um, in various voluntary organizations as, as the frame for my childhood, I think really 
um, raised me in a in very much a how does that work? Why is that the way it is? What if we do something different? Kind of mindset. Um, also, I was fortunate in that I had a er, very early contrast on the difference in in two different kinds of educational systems. Um, one was one of the best elementary school systems in the United States in Allentown, Pennsylvania, that believed in basically pushing people to their highest potential. And I was in that for up until fifth grade. And then we moved to Ohio, which at that point was spending, um, was 49th in the list of how much money states were spending on their educational systems. And it really showed. And the contrast between the experience I had, um, even in sixth grade, I was aware that I was, um, I was, being offered fewer resources, shall we say, in education mm. than I had been previously. And and so even then I was aware of how important it was to make the most of whatever resources you had. So, mm. um, and then I also have to talk about my two older sisters, who, mm. um, one of whom is a brilliant teacher of, uh, she's retired now, special special education students and is a, a fantastic musician. The other one is a fantastic artist and graphic designer. And uh, again, both very active in, in working in their communities, um, both having the same sort of voracious interest in things outside their usual daily frames of experience, um, traveling, Eating, eating, uh, learning new cultures by eating was a big part of my family <laughs> life early on. So, so this this whole sense of um, throwing yourself into change whenever possible was really part of, I think, our our family culture. Um, as an undergraduate, I was at um, Michigan State University, but I was in a, a program that they had set up kind of to mimic the Oxford experience of residential colleges. And so I was at Justin Morrow College, which was a liberal arts college within Michigan State and also a member of Honors College. And what that meant essentially was that I got to design my own undergraduate major. Now that has both good and bad <laughs> possibilities there. And the Justin Morrow faculty often used to sort of warn us that too many times they had people that sort of launched themselves into the smorgasbord of the undergraduate uh, possibilities at Michigan State. And then at the end of four years, have, had to had to package it as a major and would end up something called humanity in the universe. Mm -hmm. And they watched me over four years deliberately create something that was more or less humanity in the universe, although I ended up calling it philosophy, technology, and social change. Mm. And my main advisor there was someone who was actually very focused on media. On He ran the television, the video lab, so we were all uh, were making videos at that point. And he, as required reading, had us read Marshall McLuhan's Understanding Media. And it was sort of this big aha moment that connected a lot of the other uh, classes I was taking on economic history and um, and advanced physics and just a whole variety of sort of odd, a grab bag of odd things. But this notion that technology extends um, the human mind and human perceptions in interesting ways and and, and helps us reperceive reality and at the same time constrains 
what we can do as well as opening up opportunities just sort of caught my attention. And that was what led to this philosophy, technology, social change, humanity and the universe kind of uh, uh, critical feast that I created for myself as my major. One of the interesting things that happened in my junior and senior year was the books that I was finding that were most interesting and seemed to address some of these questions on how technological innovation affected society and affected social change. When I turned them over, when, when you, back in the old days when we'd all buy physical books, when you turn the book over, um, they would have keywords on the back of the book that helped people shelve them in the bookstore and shelve them in libraries. And so they'd say things like history or biography. And I started finding that all the most interesting books that I was buying, when I turned them over, they said future studies. Mm. And I thought, what is that? Is that a thing? Mm. And then I also very quickly became realized that, um, and I had extended my undergraduate degree, so I was actually um, at Michigan State for, for five years exploring philosophy, technology, and social change. And I realized that basically I had an undergraduate degree in advanced miscellaneous, and that would be kind of hard to sell as great uh, background for most of the practical jobs in the world. So I started looking for graduate degrees. Hmm. And there was an interesting program at um, an undergraduate, uh, sorry, a master's degree in futures at the University of Minnesota. And there was one at University of Massachusetts, but a lot of them were in business or in education. And I noticed that the one at the University of Hawaii was in political science. And mm. so I wrote to all of these different programs and asked them to send me further information. And I got a two-page, highly detailed response back from Hawaii. And mm. that sort of pulled me on it. And then uh, I was fortunate enough to get an East-West Center scholarship to go there. So the short answer is I got mm. interested technology and its impact on society, discovered there was an emerging field called future studies and found my way to the, um, to the tutorship of uh, Jim Dater, who was mm. at the time director of the Hawaii Research Center for Future Studies, um, mm. and also was lucky enough as part of my scholarship at the, from the East-West Center, uh, a think tank um, sort of next door to the University of Hawaii, uh, I had to work on a research project with them, and I was lucky enough to be assigned to work with the OPEC downstream project and Feridun Fesharaki, uh, a noted petroleum economist, who was looking at the impacts of um, OPEC and the politics of the Middle East on global the global energy economy and global energy systems. So that was also a really good um, sort of grounded introduction to more typical kinds of forecasting to balance out um, the gym data, any useful information about the future should appear to be ridiculous, sort of uh, futures provocateur kind of training that I was getting at, um, at Hawaii. And the other thing I would have to say is that um, I'm still still developing my practice. I'm still learning. So I would I would have to say that my mentors and inspirations are certainly all my colleagues, all my students, 
um, and all my clients. I learn something new from all of those people every single day. Thank you. And might move on to the next question if you're happy with that, which is around focusing on on whether it's a, a small selection of tools or whether there's one particular foresight or futures tool that you've used over time or um, are starting to use more recently, just one that you want to speak about and go into detail about how, how you might kind of use that in, in practice for our listeners who might want to know um, more about kind of one of the actual tools. Futures as a field has advanced considerably and grown, evolved considerably over the past 30 to 40 years. So when I was a graduate student, you kind of had to self-evolve your conceptual framework for future studies because the field was sufficiently young then that um, there was a growing consensus over what some of the core concepts and core assumptions were. But we all had to clarify that in our own minds. And anyone who is doing a dissertation has to, of course, choose a research focus. And essentially, my research focus is methods. So no, I do not have one method. In fact, I'm <laughs> yeah. bad about the people that have only one method. Yeah, so, yeah of course. Yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> to me, the important part is thinking about what the arc of futures activities requires, right? What is, what is in an, a full, fully fledged futures study? And so at the core, you have to notice that things are changing. You have to hone your awareness of change. And you have to knit together the patterns of changes and impacts. You have to critique and assess the impacts and your assumptions mm-hmm. that um, the assumptions that that have been made more explicit and clarified by the fact that you are contrasting them with some of these emerging changes that you're seeing. Um, you evolve alternative future outcomes, you articulate values and preferred futures, and then you negotiate actions today to make change happen mm. that, in theory, creates new futures. So if that's the overall arc, um, one of the interesting things that I found is that it is absolutely essential to start with history. And I'm sure you've mm-hmm. had a lot of other people mention that when you've talked mm-hmm. to um, some of the other uh, leaders yeah. in our community that you have yeah. that you have interviewed previously. And it's we carry our history with us. And I, and I had the, the fortune of being able to quote James Baldwin because there was a stunning biographical documentary on James Baldwin um, on Saturday night, I Am Not Your Black Man. And, and as he said, we are our history. And so all our histories are unique, but they all intertwine in various ways. And it's useful to begin any futures exercise, any futures work with students or with clients or with your colleagues by reminding people how much change they have lived through, how chaotic Mm -hmm. our lives are on a regular basis. Granted, we have occasional special periods of chaos, like like what we're living through right now, but Mm. that so building shared timelines to understand both our unique individual experiences of history and also how how all of our unique experiences are corded together to create mm. something more like system shifts um, and some of the plateaus and watersheds we've seen is really important as an important starting place. 
So to look through patterns of changes, crescendos, watersheds of, of system shifts and transformations. The other upside of it is that reviewing history tends to actually be a very entertaining thing to do and always makes people laugh. So it's always good to start off a futures exercise with a sense of humor. The mm. other core, there are actual tools, but it's almost more a core um, perspective is that of systems thinking. So both mm. soft systems mapping, more technical causal loop mapping, um, and also understanding the patterns of chaos and how complex adaptive systems respond to patterns of chaos or try to work mm. their way out of chaos is, a, again, a critical set of frameworks to understand both history, but also to understand what emerges out of history, what what mm. bursts past the moment of the present from history and and kind of explodes into the future. So that's important. All right. And now you're thinking, is she ever actually going to talk about an actual <laughs> method? Okay. So based on that, then it's logical for me to say one of the um, one of the tools that was actually designed specifically for future studies, and to my mind, is both one of the absolutely most useful tools, has the advantage of being simple, and yet can potentially be profound and emerge into complexity and is also enormous fun and makes people laugh, futures wheels. So mm. the idea of first asking people, you know, what they see changing around them and maybe expanding their sense of that by, by sharing results of a formal horizon scanning um, or emerging issues analysis so that their eyes have been open to some of the more unusual changes happening. But then to answer the what if question or, or so what question that you frequently get when you hand people results of a horizon scan by having them do futures wheels and think through what the specific impacts are and the impacts of the impacts and the impacts mm. of the impacts of the impacts. Because by the time you get to those third layer, that third layer of impacts, the tertiary impacts, you're frequently, if, if you're being specific and vivid about uh, mapping those cascades of impacts, you frequently get to very counterintuitive, surprising, very provocative outcomes at that level. Mm. You're also teaching people to think forward into time in a way that's both logical and creative, because each wave of impacts is another, what, five, 10 years. So by the time you get out to the tertiary level, you're at, you know, 20, 30 years from now, You're, you've thought a generation out. So futures wheels, a favorite, favorite thing. And in fact, the scenario building process that I devised um, when I was a grad student at Hawaii, uh, Manoa scenario building, different from Manoa for futures, basically uh, has at its core building futures wheels of three different orthogonally different emerging issues, meaning they come from different sectors of change, and combining them by looking for systems links like amplifying connections and, and balancing connections and creating a story out of all of the details that get generated uh, that way. So you can use futures wheels in a lot of interesting ways. Um, because of this emphasis on overlapping ripples of change, one of the newer conceptual frameworks that I ran across when it was first used in the UK Foresight Program's stunning report on intelligent infrastructure systems and the future of intelligent infrastructures 
is Bill Sharp's Three Horizons and the idea that change doesn't happen simply. It crashes into us in overlapping waves and we don't perceive it or respond to it simply. There are different mindsets. And the Three Horizons, in addition to, to representing waves of change, also represents the mindsets, the, the sort of managerial mindset of maintaining stability, the visionary mindset of creating something entirely new and novel and transformative, and the entrepreneurial mindset that bridges between the two and actually is practical about creating change and, and creating systems. So Three Horizons. Archetypes. Scenario archetypes or image archetypes, um, what is associated, a method associated with the Hawaii Research Center for Future Stu Studies is, of course, Jim Dater's Four Futures, which are often mm. sometimes called the Manoa Futures. Mm. Um, and it's interesting. I just had a conversation about the history of those earlier today, and there used to be more than four. So I'm writing an essay about how there used to be more than four. Oh, right. Yeah. Jim Jim has simplified them down to four different shapes of social change. But initially, yeah. and in doing that, has collapsed what used to be the green environmental future into the disciplined authoritarian future, which I find ideologically kind of interesting conflation. But it's true that the shape of change of those two is the same. So anyway, this notion that just as in good drama, there are stories that we tell over and over again. Mm. And and so there are patterns to things. And that also connects back to systems. You know, there are patterns in systems. There are patterns in narratives. There are patterns in culture. And so, yes, um, when we're telling stories about the future, just as when we tell stories about the past, they often fall into these archetypes. And those are based on actually looking at large collections of scenarios or images of the future. That's how Jim derived them initially. Um, Clem Beasold also worked on that. Chris Jones also worked on that. More recently, um, in doing some work for the Natural England here in the UK, I got a chance to revisit the array of scenario archetypes by doing a similar sort of an textual analysis of about 30 different scenario projects that all used very different methods. And yet, we're often coming up again with stories depicting futures that fell into certain patterns. So understanding this notion of the similarities of the stories we tell about the future, even when the details may be unique and provocative, I think is important, which then gets us to the one of the core concepts and core tools in future studies, which is images of the future in every way you might think of them. And very often in future studies, especially in applied future studies, the focus is on creating images of the future. And I love scenario building. It's, it's sort of, you know, an enormous amount of fun, an enormous stretch of both your logical and your systemic and your creative thinking muscles. That's awesome. But what we often forget as academics, is that it is also part of our responsibility or part of our mandate to look at the ambient images of the future, to look at the images of the future that are out there in culture. So those are ancient images of the future, utopian literature, religious images, political ideologies, science fiction, advertising. Every single ad, ad is selling you a product based on a promise it's making you about the future. In the same way, politicians are selling you a future 
in exchange for your vote, right? They're making mm. promises on that um, and embedded in people's imaginations. At any given point, any person that you are talking to has multiple images of the future rocketing around in their brain. And so we've got a planet of what, six, seven billion people now? We are all innately futures thinkers. And one of the issues, and I think this is what the, the futures literacy movement is, is trying to promote, is how can we do it better? Um, art, poetry, and music. The extent to which you can use the tools of culture to create more evocative, more vivid, more densely experiential. I mean, that's one of the great things in recent future studies has been has been this focus on experiential, multicultural um, exercises and explorations of futures from many, many different perspectives. I mean, future studies as a community was always quite global and international, but it's great to see that emphasized. Just as Maya Van Leem put, put together, you know, a futures museum festival that was massively experiential, and as does, of course, you know, Noah Rafford and the work that's being done in Dubai with the Museum of the Future there, and this the explorations of the contributions of art and sculpture and dance and and music and other cultural conduits of not just detailed images of the future, but sensory expressions that imply potentials for the future. Uh, when people talk about integral futures, they talk about the internal experience and how often traditional academic research does not include or sufficiently emphasize the interiority of insights and interior forms of processing change its impacts and, and possibilities for the future. One of the more interesting presentations actually at Design, Develop, Transform that Maya Van Leemput hosted was by Tyler Mongan, who is in many ways a an expert in kinesiology and a coach of the physical. I should probably have looked up his bio to get it right. Tyler, I apologize in advance. But what fascinated me was some of the work he was doing with the group in terms of understanding how we can drive our bodies differently and have a different sense of things as simple as the rate of our breathing and our heartbeat and our posture, how we position our bodies and the kind of physical actions and physical stances we take in the processes of thinking about difficult changes and emerging opportunities and preferred futures and dystopias and how we're not just processing those things with our rational mind and our critical mind and our creative mind and our systems mind and our emotional mind, but we are also literally processing those things with our bodies, our bodies mm. that are not just made up of human cells, but also entire micro colonies and, and microbiomes, mm. right? So mm. so this issue of our bodies as an interface that we have to be conscious of and conscious of how we can position ourselves differently in, in the physical sense in confronting our desires for the future, I think is is another unexplored area. 
And so all of the participatory and experiential new tools that are emerging are fantastic. Although I am sort of puzzled that people are saying, yeah, I'm puzzled by the fact that they have to emphasize that some of these tools are participatory because quite frankly, there shouldn't be any other kind. And from early on, almost all the work we were doing at HRCFS and all my subsequent work has been, I would say, 90% participatory. I have had a few um, projects where people have sort of said, could you just write the scenarios for us? I was like, okay. And that can be fun too. Having serious practitioners who are very futures literate, I have entitled my dissertation Futures Fluency for a reason. I would say that it's Futures Fluency because when you are a practitioner for a long time, you're not only fluent in the methods, you're also fluent in images of the future because you've been collecting a Mm. lot of images of the future and and, um, enhancing the dimensionality with which you can think about and express potentials for the future and possibilities for the future. So um, Mm. great participatory and experiential. And then, of course, what I've been working on most recently with Zia Sardar and uh, Jordi Serra and Chris Mm. Jones, this was a a group of people at the Center for Post-Normal Policy and Future Studies, is this this idea of exploring what post-normal future studies might have to look like in order to really address some of the, the volatility, the chaos, the turbulence, a really rich understanding of what it means to incorporate complex adaptive systems theory into futures thinking and to even when we're talking about trying to deliberately create change understanding that complex adaptive systems evolve and and anything we do is going to create not only maybe the change we want to see, we hope, but also will have inevitably other emergent properties that will create other impacts that it's very hard to anticipate in advance. So binding all of that together is kind of what I've been having fun doing. (laughs) Um, And certainly I would say that a robust approach to future studies needs needs to tap into all of those techniques. In addition mm. to having as a regular daily discipline doing several hours of just scanning for change. The next question, you can answer this question and frame it up in, in whatever way you would like. But this question's really about getting a perspective from you as a, as a person, as a human, um, on this earth in the current environment. What are you seeing in terms of the future in, say, whatever time frame that you want to speak to in terms of if it's um, 15 years, 30 years? What are you seeing? Okay, I have to admit, I'm now really envious of all the people that you have interviewed prior <laughs> to February. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, a time-based question. <laughs> it really is. Okay, so that to me is is difficult. And, and it, it's interesting because I am not, as a futurist, known as much for making statements about what I think the future is going to be. Mm. I 
really spend most of my time trying to help other people clarify their ideas of what all the possible futures might be and think about what those possibilities mean to them Mm -hmm. and what that means for their own values and goals and what they want to achieve. So I don't ever see a singular future, really. Again, Mm -hmm. part of it is because of this focus on ripples of turbulence and emergence and of my source of what little optimism I have, which is a constant celebration of human imagination and will that is tempered with my acknowledgement of human self-deception and bias, I guess. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I have become aware of Mm. is that the last three months, it seems to me, have made futurists live where we ask other people to go when we're running workshops with them to sort of live the experience on a day-to-day basis. And let me give you an example to explain what I mean. So I and my colleagues at um, SAMI Consulting, along with several other uh, consulting groups and a big consortium, we're working on a project for the European Commission in terms of futures of research and innovation policy. And essentially Mm -hmm. what the European Commission wanted to know is what are some potential future contexts that we might face as we are trying to create a more resilient and productive research and innovation infrastructure ecology. And and in so doing, we might want to collaborate with other countries, other regions. So what are some of the futures of research and innovation in other regions of the world? Take it out to about 2040. So quite frankly, we set up kind of the exactly the sort of futures project you might imagine. We did horizon scanning and we highlighted some key uncertainties and we highlighted strengths and weaknesses in the various regions, which were defined by the European Commission mm-hmm. as to what countries they felt fell into what regions. And then we had a scenario building workshop where we came in um, in discussion in discussion with a small sort of futures network within the European Commission, we created a, a framework for global scenarios. And we basically had a workshop where we had people who were nominally experts in, in these different regions come in and say, well, if these are the four global scenarios, if these are for a framework that depicts um, where the world as a whole might be in 2040, in that scenario, my region is likely to be doing this. So essentially, we had a set of four global scenarios and 40 regional scenarios, 10 regions, four scenarios each. Mm. And, um, and we went through the typical round of getting feedback and revision and with the client who, who wanted them to be, um, he wanted the style to be a little bit different. He wanted them to be a bit longer and, and talk about how the 2040 emerged over time, which, okay, fair. And we were entering that edit period because the, the workshop that gave us the initial information was in like December. We entered that edit period in February. Now, a global pandemic had not been our starting point. <laughs> so literally um, late February and all through March, uh, and I was trying to graph, uh, draft the narrative of the global scenarios. 
I would get up every day and read the newspapers and do my usual two hours of scanning and go, well, now I have to rewrite. Mm. And then I'd get up the next day and say, and now I have to rewrite because the context kept changing. Essentially, in the last, what, what it feels to me that we are living through is a massive decoupling and hopefully temporary decoupling of systems in a way that um, is is both alarming and a crisis, but also, as many people have pointed out, creates an open space and a, a momentary pause. Um, someone someone just uh, coined the hashtag the anthropause to reflect on how we want to come out of this and if we can rebuild to a different state coming out of this, right? To incorporate different dimensions, different emphases. So that's the exciting part, the downside is we are inevitably going to go through an awful lot of pain. Real people are experiencing real pain on a variety of dimensions, economic, physical, you name it. And that's going to continue to go on. So quite frankly, these scenarios that we were writing for the EC got a bit dark, especially mm. because at the point where, let's let's say we start doing things right authoritarianism does not win the day. The pandemic does not kill quite as many people as it potentially mm. could. We mm. sell vaccines. So, so let's say that, you know, a moderately, we, we come up with a moderately good, reasonably timely response, and we start pulling out of the economic disaster, the, the humanitarian disaster that has, that has been the pandemic and its economic impacts. We're going to be pulling out of that and rebuilding and even if we start rebuilding in totally sustainable ways, we're just going to really have that project started by, say, 2030. And again, these scenarios are going to 2040, at which point, well, and see, and again, I, I'd change this. I'd, I'd change the scenarios again if I were still writing them. I would say at mm. which point around 2030, the really serious environmental impacts from the climate crisis kick in. Mm. And food supply becomes problematic and animal extinctions go get get disastrous there there are the people that are talking about year zero when all wild uh, land animals are extinct being 2026 if you just do the forecast using the mathematics right so potentially the next 20 years are going to be an extremely uh, a test to destruction kind of test of humanity's ability to be resilient and to understand mm. that we are embedded we are part of the ecology. We are not, in fact, above it. And so to, under, to understand that in a really all the way down to the core of our societies and cultures and to understand that means doing things differently. Uh, and again, when we were writing the scenarios, we were saying, well, the, the shift over from pandemic crisis response to climate crisis response being absolutely unavoidable will be around, you know, 2025, 20, 2030 or early 2030s. Now, given that we're seeing 101 degrees or 40 degrees, I'm not sure what the centigrade is, temperatures in the Arctic, that may come even faster. So on the one hand, I am seeing people rising up all over the world and uniting in, in addressing age-long systemic inequities and racism. So yay, people! On the other hand, uh, you see just as many people that are trying to 
pull the system back to some sort of historical incarnation of systems and economic dominance that is maladaptive, mm. maladaptive at, you know, like species extinction levels of maladaptiveness. So I usually am the optimist in the crowd and mm. not at the moment. But again, what is interesting about this time from, you know, someone who is a member of a community people that of, of people, of practitioners that turn to everyone else and say, you, you need to learn to, you know, grapple with uncertainty and relish mm. uncertainty, and <laughs> glory and chaos. And it's suddenly, you know, in everyday practice myself, I'm having to remind myself of that, that, okay, mm. it's uncertainty is now part of our practice in ways, in very concrete ways that I don't think it has been prior to this. And and maybe that's just me. Maybe it was this extraordinary, extraordinary circumstance of being in the middle of writing all of these scenarios and having to revise and revise and revise because every day there was more turbulence being generated that basically could potentially take us in a different direction. And this ties back to what, um, again, the, the emphasis with some of the work we're doing in at the Center for Postnormal Policy and Future Studies, and and conversations that I'm having with uh, friends and colleagues like Dave Snowden, who is um, and Sonia Bignot, who are sort of experts in in chaos and and complexity as applied to changing social systems. And one of the things I kept sort of reminding myself as I was tempted every day to like start from scratch with the scenarios, is that the the reason I wanted to do that. And of course, our project manager was going, no, Wendy, you just have to write it and we have to submit it because this project has to come to an end, which is practical. <laughs> right? That's yeah. true. In the real world, where we're actually doing this as a business, that's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. The theoretician in me kept saying, we are in chaotic times. And what is the one thing that we know about forecasting systems in chaos? Sensitive dependence on initial conditions. And so the range of outcomes you get from forecasting forward from today, when I know, when, when I have this little datum that the Arctic is warming, right is, is right now much warmer than it has ever been, mm-hmm. versus two days ago when maybe the, the sort of provocative little emerging signal of the day might have been something else, would potentially take me as an outcome to very different spaces on the sort of chaos attractor basin of this particular era. And again, we're, we're still conceptually trying to work out what some of those connections are between chaos theory, complexity theory, and some of the usual concepts and the more, and, and these often used tools in future studies. You know, what are mm-hmm. images of the future, are visions, not not so much goal statements as attractors, right? Mm. That, that concept of the vision as a lighthouse that you're steering towards, but you can get to it in a lot of different ways. And again, um, that's something I'm still, I'm, I'm still sketching out, thinking through mm. with, with the help mm. of various friends and colleagues. So... More on that later. <laughs> Interview me again next year, and I may have something on yeah. that. But 
Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. I think I think we are headed towards even in the most optimistic way of looking at it, we're headed towards mm. difficult transition times. There are going yeah. to be people who are going to be very excited about some of the changes that will need mm. to be made. And there will, as always, be people who resist them tooth and nail, potentially violently. So, mm. bumpy times ahead. Okay, the next question is a lot simpler to answer, a lot more focused, I think, just because it's more of a day-to-day question that I'm sure you come across. So the next question is, if you're speaking to someone um, and they ask you, what is foresight or what is a futurist, how do you describe it briefly to someone who has no previous understanding of the field? I smiled when I saw this. Uh, This is actually a question. When I was doing the five years that I was teaching face-to-face at the University of Houston. I still teach there via the miracles of Zoom. But face-to-face and uh, working with Oliver Markley and Peter Bishop, this was this is something that Peter would always ask people to formulate during the capstone seminar, which, which was sort of the last seminar at, at the end of the master's degree. And when you're supposed to have some idea of what it is you're doing here with all this future stuff that we've you know been teaching you. So the notion of an elevator speech right? Mm. You get an elevator, you and everybody else presses presses four or five or whatever, and you have the space of five floors or 10 floors, however many floors, to explain to someone what it is that you do. And one of our grad students was explaining this to me at one point when we were, we were sitting around having a beer and I went, oh, elevator speech. And he said, yeah, what's yours? And I thought, uh-oh, I'm yeah. the faculty. <laughs> I, I better come up with a good one. So let me tell you what my elevator speech oh, is. Oh, great. Future studies is a transdisciplinary, or many say post-disciplinary, systems-thinking-based approach to analyzing patterns of change in the past, identifying trends of change and signals of emerging change in the present, and exploring alternative scenarios of possible change in the futures in order Mm. to help people now in creating the futures they most desire. And it is post-normal, I would add now. Great, short and sweet. I suppose it it'll be interesting in terms of if someone walking down the street just see a your kind of average person, what their response to that might be. The, no, the very shortest version, the very mm. version that is a bit tongue in cheek, and also granted was I formulated during my more optimistic days, and kind of right after having finished writing a dissertation that was mostly about how multiple different methods fit together to create a very robust visioning preferred futures process was I teach people to daydream effectively. Mm. Yeah, I like that one. This final question is open. Is there a specific topic that you want to just spend some time talking about? Well, there is. There is something that is that is sort of near and dear to my heart that I'm I'm working towards, and it connects to a lot of what I have been discussing here. Mm-hmm. So, again, a core concept in future studies is images of the future, and I've already talked mm-hmm. about the idea, the the fact that I don't think we emphasize 
collecting and analyzing ambient images of the future as much as perhaps we should. And I, I mm. do understand that people who are solely in the consulting, practical, applied futures and foresight business don't get paid to do academic studies like um, mm. collect and interpret images of the future across all of society. But heck, we do actually have a fair number of academic institutions of future studies. So I'm hoping that someone mm. there, someone in one of those programs goes, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's, we should, <laughs> we should start an inventory. That aside, one of the things that I really, really want to do is especially now that we have software platforms that support doing this. What I would like to see created on an ongoing basis is a crowdsourcer to collect images of the future. They could be images of the future of any kind. I personally would like to be able to compare preferred futures, but even images of what people are, think might happen or are worried about happening would also be useful from every single person on the planet <laughs> because we sometimes think we're more different than we are. Mm. And I think it would be instructive to be able to say, there are some cultural differences. What are they? Can we, as, I mean, as scholars and researchers, do we understand how people in Peru and people in Tanzania and people in Tibet and people in Portugal and people in mm. Canada do the future and what the differences mm. are and what the similarities are. And mm. what are some of the stories they tell about the future? That would be a fascinating read. So mm. the fact that we can now use platforms such as mm. uh, I, I mentioned Dave Snowden, such as Dave Snowden and Cognitive Edge's SenseMaker platform, that basically is a story collector that allows people to self-analyze their stories, as opposed to letting a survey researcher somewhere say, oh, this is what that story meant. SenseMaker is set up so that it, it basically says, tell me a story. And then as a researcher, you can create conceptual frameworks that would help you compare the stories, but you don't, you don't code the story. You say, tell me a story to a participant. Now locate your story on this space that tells me whether you think the story is, you know, this, this future is, is a, a future that makes you happy. Is it make you sad? Does it make you angry? Does it make you frustrated? Um, is this future mm. logical or is it really ecological mm. or is it all focused on human potential? So you can, mm. So they can tell you, the people telling you and sharing their stories about the future can mm -hmm. tell you what they think their story means and where they would locate it on some sort of conceptual framework. So mm -hmm. that is something I would like to do because we can talk about and, and we can be develop all the tools we like that mm -hmm. help people artificially create scenarios of alternative futures and visions of preferred futures and we can help raise their levels of literacy or their levels of fluency, whichever way you want to think about it, in manipulating those images of the future or in constructing those images of the future and sharing them and expressing them and enabling other people to experience them all we like. Mm -hmm. But while we are doing that, every single time we put on a scenario building project or we create a visioning project, the thing that we have to remember 
is whatever futures that the participants in that project create, they are in competition with all of the other images of the future that are ambient in the culture and that are in your head and my head and the heads of everyone else on the planet. So I personally think it would be a great idea if we could start collecting some of those and comparing them. And that also feeds into this focus on really radically diversifying the voices that are represented mm. when we are talking about images of the future around the globe. So mm. that this notion of really enabling a much more widespread understanding of the full scope of images of the future that are out there, I think is something that we haven't emphasized enough in future mm. studies as a discipline and mm. as something that is meant to represent and decolonize futures for all of us. So we'll leave it there, Wendy. Thank you so much for being part of Future Pod. So thrilled that we've um, managed to connect and make this happen. Thank you so much for inviting me, Rebecca. You have been listening to another production from Future Pod. Future Pod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website, futurepod.org. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Rebecca Mayett saying goodbye for now.